0: Mormon Discussion Podcast is about helping Latter-day Saints like you lead with faith while tackling deeper, complex issues within Mormonism. All financial support goes directly towards keeping the podcast alive and supporting listeners like you. To support the podcast, please consider becoming a premium subscriber at mormondiscussionpodcast.org. Again, that's mormondiscussionpodcast, all one word, dot .org. You can do this for as little as fifty a month or $12 a year. And this will also reward you by letting you listen to premium episodes like this one months before the general public has access. Thanks for listening. And now, onto what you've been waiting to hear. I have a brother who is a huge fan of Sylvester Stallone's Rocky movies. Maybe some of you are too. A Rocky movie isn't really a Rocky movie unless it has a training montage, right? That's where we listen to the song The Eye of the Tiger while we watch Rocky train for his next big fight. That training montage was a real game changer in movies. It's been copied and satirized dozens, maybe even hundreds of times, in different movies and TV shows which came out after it. Now Rocky's a boxer, right? What's interesting about his training is that you don't actually see him boxing too much to get ready for his big fight. Yeah, he works with uh, different punching bags and he has sparring partners, but what we see him do a whole lot of is laps in the pool, long distance running, wind sprints, and jump rope. The reason for that is he can be really strong and aggressive, he can know how to throw a punch, but if he doesn't have enough speed, agility, and endurance, then the fight won't end up lasting for very long. He'll lose, because he won't be able to stay on his feet long enough. His opponent will just be able to wear him out. It's possible that some of you saw this last podcast that I did, episode 2 in my Stage 4 Mormon series, as someone might look at endurance and agility training in boxing. Hey, I'm training for a fight. I don't want to run. I don't want to jump rope. Jumping rope is for little girls. Get me some boxing gloves. Put me in the ring. I want to get ready for a fight. The thing is, if you don't do any of the things that I mentioned in Episode 2, it's really unlikely that anything else I say in this podcast, or in future podcasts, is really going to help you much. For those of you who haven't listened to Episode 2, I talked about how important it is to take care of yourself when you're transitioning from Stage 3 to Stage 4 belief. You need to take steps to eat healthfully, exercise, manage your stress. You need to find at least one person who can be there for you when you're having a bad day, when you're feeling particularly negative about the community of believers that you belong to. Getting back to the Rocky movies, isn't it interesting how in every movie he's the underdog? We never see him preparing to fight someone who's at his same level. Every opponent he goes up against is supposed to be able to wipe the floor with him. During the fight, the announcers are always talking about how Rocky doesn't have a chance the fierceness and the danger that his opponents represent to him is largely what drives Rocky to train so hard. My friends, the faith crisis you're dealing with is every bit as fierce and every bit as dangerous as any of the opponents that Rocky faces in those movies. Just in a different way. If you take your training lightly, if you don't manage your stress, if you don't improve your health and find someone to listen and support you, then you will lose, please. Please take what I said seriously in episode two, or what I talk about today is going to be really hard for you to apply in your life. For those of you who are feeling a bit lost, I encourage you to go back to episode two. If you don't know what I'm talking about when I refer to these different stages of belief or faith, then that's okay because I go over that a bit in episode two as well. Okay, so, If you've taken some steps to manage stress in your life and keep yourself healthy, and if you have a confident, a confidant, excuse me, someone who will listen and let you sort out your own feelings when you're having a hard time with your faith, then today's episode is the next step for you. Today's episode will be vital for anyone who is transitioning into stage four and wants to stay in the church, but is having a really hard time being surrounded by people who are in stage three. The topic of this podcast is narcissism. That's right, narcissism. According to Dr. Fowler's research, lots of people in Stage 4 struggle with narcissistic tendencies. So, even though this isn't exactly the most fun subject in the world to talk about, I felt that we needed to address it in this episode because, to my knowledge, no one else has really addressed this problem when trying to help Stage 4 believers and others who are going through a faith crisis. In my experience, it's not the problems that we're aware of that get us. If I'm not, if I'm aware of a problem, if I am aware of a problem, then I can usually find out a way to fix it. The problems that really get me are the ones that I'm not aware of. Because if I don't know that I need to fix something, then I never will. Narcissism is a sneaky, insidious problem, and we're going to shine some light on it. We're going to do this because If we can take care of narcissism, then solving other, more obvious problems will become a whole lot easier. The personality disorder referred to as narcissism gets its name from Greek mythology. The young man, Narcissus, is so gorgeous that two mountain nymphs fall instantly in love with him while he's taking a walk in the woods. While when one of them professes her love for Narcissus, he rejects her. And this angers the goddess of revenge, who then puts a curse on Narcissus. The next time he sees himself in, in, in water, the next time he sees his own reflection, he doesn't realize that it's him, and he falls in love with his own reflection. When he realizes he'll never be loved back by this person, because it's not a person, it's the image of himself, he commits suicide and dies. So that's where the idea of narcissism comes from. Before I jump into a brief, brief overview of a few classic narcissistic characteristics, I want to urge you to take a balanced approach to what I'm about to say. I think it's important to make it clear that I'm not a therapist, and I'm not diagnosing you, and you shouldn't try to diagnose yourself either. And, uh, continue in a spirit of full disclosure, I must admit that learning about narcissism in preparation for this episode has been a humbling experience for me. There have been a couple of times where I had to sit back and say, ooh, I kind of do that sometimes. Ugh, that's no good. Now I'm not diagnosing myself. I don't think I'm a narcissist, but I'm definitely a flawed human being. So if you see yourself in any of these characteristics I want to challenge you to be brave enough to recognize it and then move forward and try to do something positive with this information. You'll be glad that you did. I know I am. Another thing to remember is that this information about narcissism is a lot like sunscreen. Sunscreen works best when I apply it to myself. I may see someone else at the beach on a really sunny day and sincerely think that he or she needs to put on sunscreen. But if I just walk over there and start applying my sunscreen to that person, then I'm not going to get a very good reaction. It doesn't matter that uh, if I'm right. It doesn't matter if I have good intentions. People are going to freak out if I just walk up to them, a stranger, and start wiping sunscreen on their skin. How is this information about narcissism like sunscreen? The best approach is (laughs) self-application. That doesn't mean that you can't ever apply it to someone else, what it means is you need to have that person's permission first. And while you apply it to them, you need to make sure that you do it in a way that makes them feel comfortable and safe. You're much more likely to get people to invite you to apply this to them if it's first readily apparent that you've applied it to yourself. Food for thought, folks. With that Let's jump in and look at what is probably the most obvious classic characteristic of narcissism. Arrogant and haughty behavior. This kind of behavior is often displayed during a disagreement. It doesn't have to be a heated disagreement either about a hot button topic. It could just be one that a person, for example, one person likes Neapolitan ice cream and another person doesn't like Neapolitan ice cream. A good example of this comes from the tea time scene in Oscar Wilde's play, The Importance of Being Earnest, Cecily is serving Gwendolyn tea and asks her if she would like sugar. Gwendolen replies, No, thank you. Sugar's not fashionable anymore. If you watch the 2002 movie production of the play, the actress playing Gwendolyn smiles fiendishly and almost laughs at how naive her hostess is. Cecily then asks Gwendolen if she would like cake or, or bread and butter. Gwendolyn asks for bread and butter and says that cake is rarely seen in the best houses nowadays. So, is there anything wrong with not wanting sugar with your tea? No, there isn't. Is there anything wrong with preferring bread and butter to cake? No, absolutely not. What makes this behavior potentially narcissistic is communicating these preferences in a way that insults the other person. In a way that almost says, oh, I didn't realize that I was better than you. What do you know? There's nothing wrong with having a disagreement or conflict. The problem is how we express that disagreement. Do we disagree respectfully or do we make the other person feel stupid and defensive when we disagree? Disagreeing with someone at church about polygamy or blacks in the priesthood is not necessarily a bad thing. It turns bad When we do so in a way that communicates that we think people are stupid or evil because they disagree with us. Another characteristic of narcissism that we commonly think of is a strong sense of entitlement, particularly the expectation of special treatment. Whether we realize it or not, we have certain expectations for ourselves and for other people in our society. For example, We don't generally say thank you to the person who gets in line behind us at the grocery store, do we? We just expect that that person is not going to go in front of us. If someone did cut in line in front of us, we would probably get really annoyed and feel very justified at getting annoyed or even angry. After all, this person didn't live up to our expectation. A little obvious, I know, but bear with me for a second. Now let's say that I get hungry in the middle of the night. Would you say that waking up my wife and asking her to make me a sandwich and then serve it to me in bed would be asking for special treatment? I imagine you would. Now, if I'm a narcissist, I won't show any sincere gratitude when she kindly makes me that sandwich. I'll just expect that kind of treatment the way everyone else expects other people not to cut in front of them in line at the grocery store. If she refuses to make me the sandwich, and I'm a narcissist, then I'll become angry and annoyed with her. I want to point out that there's nothing necessarily wrong with asking for special treatment. What makes it narcissistic is having unrealistic expectations for people, especially when those expectations are in our favor, and then getting rude or angry when someone insists that we follow the rules or be content with reasonable and respectful treatment. A possible example of this behavior at church would be demanding a temple recommend without living the law of chastity. No one else is allowed to have a recommend while having an affair with their child's school teacher, but hey, the bishop should understand my unique circumstances. If he doesn't, I'm going to badmouth him and the whole church at my family get-togethers and on internet forums. That would be an example of narcissistic, narcissistic behavior. Again, it's one thing to ask for an exception to the rules or for special treatment. That's not the narcissistic part. What makes it narcissistic is getting as angry and annoyed as we would when someone doesn't live up to a normal, reasonable societal norm, like not cutting in line at the grocery store. The narcissist either doesn't see or doesn't care about this difference. Another symptom of narcissism is taking advantage of others for personal gain. One of the editors of a well-known anti-Mormon website gives us a good example of this. Technically still a member of the church, this man thought it would be interesting to return to his ward, sit in the back of the room during Sunday school and initiate whispered conversations about difficult church issues and then write about people's responses on his website. Now, I don't think it's bad to talk to people about tough church issues, be it at home or at church. In fact, I think we ought to do it more. Talking to people about tough church issues is not necessarily narcissistic. What makes this person's behavior narcissistic is willfully pushing another human being towards a crisis of faith just to have something new and interesting to write about on a website. If you're listening to this podcast, you know just how painful a faith crisis can be. If I willfully push someone towards that kind of pain for my own benefit like having something interesting to write about on my website, then I just might be a narcissist. When a narcissist is called out for his or her behavior, a classic response is one of shame instead of guilt. I know those two words are often used interchangeably, so let me give you an example of how I think that they're different, at least in this application. A typically embarrassing moment for a teenage boy would be waking up and realizing that he had a wet dream. An approximate equivalent to this would be when a young lady has her period and it catches her unaware. Uh, now, I could see how these two young people could feel a bit ashamed in the sense that they would prefer that the wet dream or the untimely menstruation not become public knowledge, especially right after it happens. Under those circumstances, a little bit of shame or embarrassment is understandable. Though we could argue that in a perfect world it would be totally unwarranted, but uh, we don't live in a perfect world, and I could definitely see how these young people would rather no one else know about that sort of thing happening to them. While I think that a bit of shame or embarrassment is normal in these circumstances, I would say that guilt would not be. Why should these people feel guilty? They didn't do anything wrong. We're not talking about, I mean, we're talking about some natural biological processes that happen from time to time. They shouldn't feel as though they've made a mistake or did something evil. It happens. There's no moral element to that kind of thing, one way or the other. On the other hand, let's say that I have an elderly aunt and my brother finds out that I've been stealing her prescription painkillers and using them for recreational purposes. If I'm a Typical narcissist. Then I'll probably express some shame or embarrassment to my brother. I'll give a bunch of excuses for why I did it. You know, I have such a stressful job, and Aunt Clarabelle's painkillers, and the only way I can relax in the evening when I'm driving home from work. And uh, I'll ask him not to tell anyone because you know, the rest of the family might not understand. If I'm a narcissist, I won't show any guilt it will be apparent that I don't feel it's a big deal to steal from old people, do drugs, and then drive under the influence of those drugs, drive a car or a vehicle, endangering the lives of everyone else around me. Those kinds of things will be secondary if I'm a narcissist. If I'm not a narcissist, then I will feel guilt. I'll feel that I did something morally wrong. That'll bother me. I still might not want my drug use to become common knowledge, but I'll be bothered by the fact that I'm taking advantage of my aunt and putting people's lives at risk as I do drugs and drive a vehicle. There are many behaviors that are symptoms of narcissism, but uh, what I'd like to do now is just kind of skip to the end of the list and talk about what I see as the root cause of narcissistic behavior. Narcissists have a very hard time with empathy. It doesn't come naturally to them, and when they're encouraged to be empathetic, they often fail to see why they should even try. They don't see the point. In the last podcast, I described empathy as being the ability to put yourself in someone else's shoes, to see the world from another person's perspective. Empathy and agreement are not the same thing. I can see something from someone else's point of view and still disagree, but odds are I will be much more respectful when I interact with that person. For example, about 20 years ago in Northern California, where I'm from, There was a woman who shot and killed a man who was on trial for molesting her son, for sexually molesting her son. I think this woman was uh, very easy to empathize with. After all, you don't need to be a parent to understand where she was coming from and why she did what she did. As much as I empathize with her, I still disagree with what she did. We can't have a civilized society if people are just going to take the law into their own hands. What if this guy were on trial and hadn't actually done anything to her son? What if there had been a mix-up? That happens, folks. If I kill someone in the middle of a trial, then I risk murdering an innocent human being. So I empathize. I really can understand why she would do a thing like that, but I still disagree. The empathy is important because it would allow me to treat this woman with a measure of respect. It would allow me to maybe even show sincere compassion for her and the pain that she's so obviously going through. It would allow me to take a more balanced and fair approach to her, if I ever met her personally. Now, if you look at some of the classic narcissistic behaviors like expecting preferential treatment, acting haughtily, proudly, taking advantage of others for our own benefit it suddenly becomes clear that a human being who has empathy for others would not behave this way, at least not very often, right? If I have empathy for someone who is, for example, struggling in his or her career, then I'm not going to roll my eyes and gossip around the office saying things like, just hey, see so-and-so over there? Gosh, what a loser, huh? Even if I have empathy. I still might not think very highly of my coworker's skills and abilities. The thing is, if I don't have empathy, if it doesn't occur to me what my coworker is feeling and going through, then it will be very easy for me to treat that coworker with no respect at all. Again, if I'm a narcissist and I feel no empathy, if it doesn't even occur to me how others are feeling, if the only perspective I'm keenly aware of is my is my own. Then doesn't it make sense that I would feel no guilt when I'm caught doing something wrong? Why would I feel guilt? If I have no idea how other people feel, how would their pain or discomfort make me feel remorseful? It wouldn't, it wouldn't because I wouldn't be aware of it. So that's narcissism in a nutshell, folks. Now that I've described narcissism, I want to tell you about something that makes life particularly difficult for narcissists. You see, narcissists are often what's called egocentric. that means even when their narcissism is staring them in the face they can't see it another group of people who are often called uh, egosyntonic classified as egocentric, are those who suffer from anorexia so a 5 foot 10 16 year old who weighs 115 pounds and has no idea how, unhealth- how unhealthy she is uh, is also likely to be egocentric she can look at her protruding ribs gaunt face and emaciated legs and not see that anything's wrong at all this is what it is to be egocentric and this is also what it is to of- often is to have narcissism so fixing it can be difficult because it seems completely normal to the narcissist believe it or not a real narcissist is not trying to be a jerk It just comes out that way due to a severe lack of empathy. Alright, you may say, thanks Ryan, so what am I supposed to do now? The first thing you can try to do is develop empathy, especially for people in stage 3 belief. Let me be clear, when I say that developing empathy for people in stage 3 belief will be helpful to you, I am not secretly hoping that you will somehow go back to a simpler, more basic way of believing. I see a transition from Stage 3 to Stage 4 as advancement, as progress. I don't know if it's even possible to go back to a simpler faith. And if it were, I doubt I would urge anyone to go back. The reason I want you to empathize with Stage 3 believers is because they'll be much, much more accepting of you if you don't come across as a narcissist when you talk to them. My friends, it is quite possible... That the stage three believers in your life are not nearly as disturbed by what you say as they are by how you say it and even more so by how you treat them non-verbally if you treat them as if they were stupid if you roll your eyes and make sigh heavily because they don't understand the things that you understand it's quite possible that their change in behavior towards you has little to nothing to do with your views on polygamy or what you've learned about the book of Abraham. Though they may not be aware of it themselves, the reason they treat you differently is because you have, probably unintentionally, behaved like a narcissist and they resent that. So let's look at a fictional example that I hope will ring true to you. you're in a social setting with a group of people, maybe it's Sunday school, maybe it's a family gathering or even a ward or ward council meeting. I don't know. For whatever reason, a member of the group says that black people were fence setters in the pre-mortal existence. And that's why black people have so many problems in mortality. I mean, just look at cities like Cincinnati and countries like Liberia. It all goes back to the pre-existence, the person says. There's a pause in the discussion and you decide to weigh in. I'm sorry i just need to say something i can't sit here and listen to such blatant racism we're never going to get past the stupid racist backward thinking of people like brigham young and bruce r mcconkey if we keep preaching it in the church they were wrong to say those bigoted things back then and we're wrong to do it today even the church has admitted, has admitted that they were wrong we need to stop we just need to stop So now there's an awkward silence. Let me ask you a question. What's likely to happen next? How likely is Brother So-and-so to say, Gosh, you know, you're right. Maybe I am a bigot. Maybe I don't know the gospel and church history as well as I thought. I mean, I definitely don't understand it as well as you do. I take back what I said. Sorry for wasting everybody's time. You know... Hey, I'll be honest. Maybe something like that would happen. It's not impossible. Uh But uh, it's pretty improbable, isn't it? What's more likely to happen? Well, let's see. While surrounded by practicing Mormons, you called Brigham Young and Bruce R. McConkie backward-thinking bigots. How likely is that to go over well with the group in general? <sighs> yeah, that's not likely to win us any friends or supporters. Oh yes, and you implied, quite heavily in fact, that this person, brother so-and-so, is a backwards-thinking bigot as well. How likely is that person to take what you said personally? Pretty likely, right? Are there other members of the group who love and respect this person who you've just insulted? How likely are they to consider uh, the logic and reasoning of what you said in a thoughtful and dispassionate way? Not very likely, right? Now, hold your horses. I know what some of you are thinking right now. Or what some of you may be thinking. But Ryan, if I actually said that, I would be right. That is racist. That's the racist thing for someone to say. Brigham Young and Bruce R. McConkie were wrong. And the church has admitted this. These aren't opinions. These are facts. These are facts. You can't argue with facts. Okay. Yes, that's true. That's all true. But you're not entering data into a computer. Or you if if you did this, you wouldn't be at entering data into a computer in this in this situation. You'd be interacting with another human being. If we communicate with people as if we were entering data, a list of facts, into a computer, then that is, by definition, a dehumanizing way of communicating with another human being. When we dehumanize others, even unintentionally, they either Accept this human this humiliating, dehumanizing treatment, and you know, they lose self esteem, or they get defensive and they treat us as a threat. The difference between a spirited, invigorating debate which takes place between two people with contrary views and an insulting, emotionally draining, contentious fight is how much two people feel they're respected by each other. That's the key difference. It's not that people disagree. Disagreement in and of itself is not a problem. It's that they feel disrespected. It's not about the facts. It's all about human emotion. So now what? What are we supposed to do? And uh, what in the world does this have to do with a faith crisis or narcissism? Well, let me tell you what you shouldn't do. You shouldn't just keep quiet. Not indefinitely anyway. If you try, you'll eventually explode. Eventually, you'll hear one too many of those comments and you'll blow up. You'll express yourself in a way that alienates other members of the group. So that's the first thing. Try to be aware when a certain issue is bothering you and respond to it. When you do respond, it needs to be in a way that does not include a single narcissist behavior. Again, this is one of, those, of the reasons why you need to take care of yourself, which includes having a confidant, A trusted person you can vent to who won't judge you. If you go into a situation like this with a lot of pent up anger and resentment, which may have little or nothing to do with the person you're going to talk to, then your words, your body language, the tone of your voice will communicate a level of disrespect towards that person that is undeserved and probably very inappropriate. So when it comes to these heavily charged emotions we have that are connected to certain issues. Is there anything else we can do other than take care of ourselves? Is there anything else we can do to, on the one hand, speak up in a way that's clear and honest, but on the other hand, speak up in a way that is also fair and respectful to those to whom we're speaking? It turns out there is. You see, even though you're not aware of it, your mind is constantly running an inner monologue. It's as if you're narrating the movie that is your life. When you see a child grimace when she sits down at the dinner table, your inner monologue kicks in and says, Haha, little Jessica doesn't like meatloaf. She'll try and sneak some of her meatloaf to the family dog during supper to make it look as if she ate more than she actually did. When you hear your spouse ask, how much did we spend on that last vacation? Your inner monologue kicks in and says, ooh, she's worried there won't be enough money to buy a new car next month. You're going to have to scramble later on, otherwise this is going to turn into a nasty argument. As we go about life making observations, we automatically add value and meaning to those observations. When a kid makes a face at the dinner table, that's not for nothing, that means something. When your spouse asks a question about money, there's a reason for that. We make observations and then we make assumptions based on those observations. In essence, we're narrating the novel that is our lives. It's this narration, this personal, subjective interpretation of facts that causes us to feel emotion. If I believe that my wife is asking me how much we spent on a vacation and I assume that it's to blame me for why we can't afford something like a new car, then how am I likely to feel? Defensive? Embarrassed? Evasive? What if she asks me the same question the exact same way? But I assume that she's doing it just to make sure that we have enough money to pay for our son's birthday. How will I feel then? Fine, right? I might even be pleased with her for being, you know, so forward-thinking and responsible with our family finances. People act the way they act. What determines our emotions is not their actions. What determines our emotions is how we choose to interpret those actions. What kind of narrative does our story have? That's what causes the emotion. Uh, This becomes problematic when we mistake our inherently subjective narratives for an objective interpretation of reality. Guess what? A kid who grimaces at the dinner table could actually love meatloaf. There are lots of reasons why the child may have grimaced. Maybe she had a stomach ache. Maybe her brother stuck out his tongue at her from across the room and you didn't see it. Maybe she was remembering something gross she saw on television right before she came to the table. There could be lots of reasons for why she grimaced. Uh, What does this have to do with narcissism? Remember, the root of narcissism is a lack of empathy. Narcissists are horrible at understanding how other people feel. Ask a narcissist why others disagree with him or her. What would be a typical narcissistic response? Why do they disagree with me? It's because they're idiots. It's because they're whiners. It's because they're losers. It's because they're jealous. It's because they wish they could be me. First of all, these assumptions are insulting and offensive. Second of all, they're so horribly simplistic that they can't be accurate. People are complex. To say someone disagrees with me because he or she is stupid is never the whole story. Thirdly, mean, angry assumptions like these are dangerous because they justify me in responding to another person in an equally mean and angry way. If I believe that someone is stupid, whiny, and jealous, then it's okay for me to respond in a rude way, right? After all, they're the ones with the problem who are making my life difficult, right? So what would be a likely narcissistic response to the brother at church who says that blacks are being punished in this life for not standing, standing up with uh, Michael the Archangel in our pre-mortal life? It might sound, might sound something like this. Why did he say what he said? Because he's a bigot, that's why. I've come across plenty of closet racists in the church, and this guy is definitely a closet racist. Can you imagine if his daughter brought a nice black return missionary home to introduce him to the family? Oh my gosh, this guy would throw a fit. He'd threaten to disown his daughter if she wanted to marry a black man. How stupid is that? And seriously, he is really stupid. He doesn't even know what his religion is about. He acts as if he knows how the church works, but he obviously doesn't. If he actually researches his own beliefs as I've done. He knows how stupid he sounds. (sighs) Why am I wasting my time with such stupid hypocrites? Now that's my best shot at what a narcissist might sound like. In the spirit of full disclosure, I have to admit that this nasty, offensive assumption may be correct. Hey, maybe that person is a bigot who doesn't read about his religion and beliefs. But I want to ask you something. Is there any other reason why someone might make a remark like that without that person being a full-blown Ku Klux Klan sympathizing racist? Is there perhaps even a noble or respectable motive for making such a remark, even if it is a misguided one? Some of you will remember the, uh, the interview Bill Reel did with Jeff Burton, the author of the book For Those Who Wonder. In that interview, there was an instance that stood out to me where Brother Burton could have easily adopted an offensive, narcissistic explanation for why his high priest group leader treated him in a certain way. Brother Burton was serving, at the time of the story that he was telling, uh, as his high priest group's instructor, and during the course of one of his lessons, he shared with the group that he didn't feel comfortable saying that he knew something beyond the shadow of a doubt. I don't remember what he showed less than an unshakable testimony about but i remember that he described his faith in a way with the other high priests that uh, he had a hope but not a sure knowledge of something later on his high priest group leader came to brother burton's house and read him a section from uh, the priesthood manual of that time that said that group instructors should be people with a strong faith since brother burton had openly expressed a hope That was not a sure knowledge the high priest group leader felt that he needed to be released from his calling as a teacher. What struck me about this story was how Brother Burton then described the motivations and intent of this high priest group leader. There was no narcissism at all in how he reacted. He didn't say, well this high priest group leader is a dogmatic simpleton who doesn't understand the complexities of faith. Or this guy says he knows but he's a hypocrite, he doesn't know does he? Has he seen an angel? Has Christ appeared to him in the flesh? Has he handled the golden plates? I don't think so. All he has is subjective emotions. He didn't say anything like that. Brother Burton certainly made an assumption about his high priest group leader. We all do make assumptions. But what was that assumption? In the interview with Bill Reel, he says that he assumed that his high priest group leader was simply trying to follow the rules as best he understood them. He assumed that, though probably incorrect, this man was motivated by a desire to do the right thing. My friends, I really think that this is one of the main reasons Brother Burton is still an active, devout Latter-day Saint. He's not a narcissist. I mean, I'm sure he has flaws and limitations, but narcissistic behavior doesn't seem to be one of them. People in the church can disagree with him, and he can, at the very least, give serious consideration to the idea that the person who disagrees with him is doing so with good, honorable, respectable intentions. Accepting a narrative that people who disagree with us can essentially be good and decent is a powerful thing. When we enter into a discussion with them, it's easier to treat them with love and respect. It doesn't necessarily that we will agree with the points they're making, not at all. All it does is allow us to disagree without being disagreeable. By accepting that they probably have good intentions it becomes easier for us to separate the issue from the person a narcissist can't do that everyone makes assumptions that's just what we do as human beings narcissists however will assume that people who disagree with them are stupid or jealous or just plain evil not only will they make nasty assumptions about others often with very little evidence they will also be very reluctant to consider any positive motivations for a person's behavior once they've made their insult- insulting assumption. Those of you who have fam- uh, a familiar knowledge of Fowler's stages of faith know that stage four belief is all about taking personal responsibility. My friends, stage four belief only works if we avoid blaming others, if we become determined to resolve the things that are within our ability to resolve. If we take responsibility for the things that are under our own control and, consequently, let go of the things which are not, we'll be much better off. Here are two things you can do about this problem of narcissistic behaviors which are common problems in stage 4 belief. Number one, if you say something and then notice confused or offended expressions on people's faces. If you go off on a tirade about something you feel is important and then there's an awkward silence. If you notice that people who weren't defensive or touchy before you started talking have become visibly defensive and touchy since you began talking, if you notice this, I want you to stop. Take a deep breath and then take control of the situation. You take control of the situation by taking responsibility for what you just did. Something you did, something you said just offended someone close to you. Take responsibility for that. Apologize. Apologize sincerely. An apology doesn't mean that you think that your line of reasoning was wrong or that you think the other person is suddenly right. No, not necessarily. If you are specific about it, you can make it clear that you are sorry for coming across as impatient, rude, condescending, or any other adjective commonly associated with narcissism. Don't blame them for understanding you incorrectly. Take responsibility for the way you communicate, for the way you come across to others. Now that first point will help you with situations where you offended someone else. But what if you are the one getting offended, or annoyed, or any other negative emotion that gets your heart racing? What then? Once you notice that you are beginning to get emotional, stop, check yourself, and then look inside yourself for the self-confidence and security you will need to question your own assumptions. Remember. The reason you're getting angry is because you've assumed that this other person is acting on bad motives. If you want to get past any narcissistic behaviors which you might be struggling with, then you need to at least be able to seriously ask yourself a question like this. Could this person be acting with some respectable or even honorable intention? Even though I don't like what this person is saying or how this person's behaving, could it be that he's trying to do what he or she thinks is right if you can't get yourself to seriously contemplate that kind of question then you need to get yourself out of that conversation as quickly as possible table it for another time if that's not a question that you can seriously entertain then you're gonna do more harm than good by continuing continuing in the conversation again let me be clear I'm not asking you to back down Or change your beliefs i'm not asking you to tell anyone you think that they're right when you think they're wrong quite the contrary once you've checked yourself once you've apologized for coming across as a jerk or once you've been able to identify a possible honorable intention for why someone is saying or doing something you disagree with i hope you are able to continue the conversation you probably wouldn't get so heated up if the subject weren't important to you so go ahead speak your mind but when you speak your mind, and I want you to speak your mind, I don't want you to sit back and grumble all the time, I do want you to speak up when you feel you should. When you speak up, just make sure that you have, that you avoid the narcissistic behaviors that are common to people on stage four. It will make your life and the lives of others around you much, much easier. I'm gonna repeat that one more time just because uh, I know this is gonna be useful to you at some point in in the near future. So number one, if you find yourself offending others, take responsibility for that. Apologize for the way you communicate if other people find your communication offensive. Remember, apologizing for how you say something is not an apology for what you are saying, your main message. Number two, if you find yourself becoming offended, ask yourself, is it possible that this offensive person at church might actually be acting on good intentions, albeit misguided ones. These two simple habits will save you a lot of time and trouble in your relationships with people at church and probably at home as well. So far in our series on Stage 4 Belief, we've talked about taking care of ourselves and avoiding narcissistic behaviors. Please let me know how implementing these changes in your life uh, is going for you. What's going well? What's not going well? I want to know so we can celebrate your successes. I also want to know so maybe I can address your problems in future episodes. So go ahead and leave comments underneath uh, the podcasts. uh, Or you can send emails to Bill and he can forward those on to me. We'll set something up so you can communicate with me directly in in, in the future, possibly. Uh, By taking better care of yourself and avoiding narcissistic behaviors... You will soon be ready for the next step in your journey to healthy, happy, stage 4 belief. And I'm looking forward to talking about this next step in our next podcast. But until then, may the Lord warm your shoulders. Who brought them dead to life? He's the one who fed the hungry and who gave the blind their sight. He's the one who walked on water, then he brought them safe to shore. And when